our gospel portion for Trinity Sunday is from Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16. It's a tradition that when you're in the presence of a king, you stand. So technically, we should be standing the whole time. But we do it when we, do, when we hear the words of our king teach us to give him honor. So brothers and sisters, the good news according to Matthew. Then the eleven disciples went to the Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am always with you to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask that um, as you taught your servant Moses, that uh, you would teach us and that uh, your spirit would come and uh, guide us and direct us. Lord, lead us not only into the truth, but lead us into the ability to do the truth, to live the truth, yes, to reflect your character and your goodness and your grace to a very needy and confused world. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So it's, um, it's a very unusual day or Sunday and the tradition of many churches or the practice of many churches, it's the only Sunday that has a theological theme. Yes. Every week we read the gospel. Yes, something from the life of Jesus, related passages from the Psalms, the Old Testament. And uh, there's a focus. The focus is on what God is doing or what God has done through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. But one Sunday, the Sunday after Pentecost, is, and you may not like the word, but unfortunately, uh, it does express a lot of things in shorthand. It is Trinity Sunday. Yes, I know the term does not appear in the scripture. And... uh, It has been the ruin of many a preacher, many a preacher to think that he or possibly she can in 30 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half, two hours, all afternoon, get close to explaining this mystery called the Trinity. I'm convinced if you talk about it for more than, talk about what it is for more than 15 minutes, you might end up, easily could end up uh, in one form of heresy or another. To talk about what it does would be something else. 
And uh, I think the safest thing today is just to look at the text <clears throat> and that way to avoid all kinds of hate mail. <clears throat> well, it's, it, and it's not the hate mail that's problematic. It's, it's the kind of letters you get who uh, convinced that the Nephilim really unlocked the mystery of the Trinity, you know. <laughs> My goodness. It's a jungle out there, theologically. So Matthew 26. And uh, as we said this morning, Matthew 26 is a marvelous, marvelous ending, yes, to, uh, to Matthew's gospel. Someone once described it as the perfect ending that... You couldn't add or take away one word from this passage because in so many ways it sums everything up. Everything. At the end, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Yes, but how does the gospel start? The gospel starts, yes, with the Annunciation, with an angel who comes to Mary and says, you are with child, and uh, you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Yes. Um, and then it goes on to talk about his name being Emmanuel, God with us. And I think right there, right, right in chapter 1, um, I think something very important happens. Yes, Jesus is God with us. But Jesus also is the one who saves us from our sins. And, you know, we're saved from our sins not to go to heaven. Many people have this wrong, I believe. You need to get saved so you, when you die, you go to heaven. That's not the goal. The goal is for us to be delivered from our sin and the sin problem to be removed so we can, what? Enjoy Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, that fellowship with us, that community or communion with him. Yes, that's the purpose of salvation. Purpose of salvation is not simply to go to heaven and to avoid hell, which is a great blessing, by the way, if you can, we can avoid those avoid that place? No. The goal, the goal is intimacy, fellowship, relation. Yes, that's why, that's what we were made for. And then right in the middle of the gospel, oh my goodness, in Matthew 18, we have this uh, concern of Jesus that his people, yes, those who call themselves by his name, yes, <clears throat> will reflect God's character, will actually live in the way that he lives with the Father and that the Father lives with him. Yes, and we call that a chapter in church discipline in Matthew 18. I don't like that phrase, but okay. And what happens when brothers fall out? Yes, because of our uh, egos or our stinky personalities or our brokenness. 
And Jesus says, okay, here's a way that you uh, address the broken relationships in my community. And then there in the middle is kind of an odd verse. doesn't seem to have anything to do. He says, well, I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And by the way, this is not talking about the demonic or the spiritual in this case. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, this is a beautiful promise right, of God, of Emmanuel, God with us. But it's so misunderstood or even so abused because it's not, hey, let's get together and say we're meeting uh, to play Monopoly in the name of Jesus or we're going to have a few gin and tonics in the name of Jesus or we're going to sit around and have a prayer meeting but really end up gossiping about you know, folks in the name of Jesus. And just by saying that phrase, in the name of Jesus, it's not some kind of magic. Yes, it's not some kind of mantra. Meeting together in the name of Jesus is, is this intense desire to meet for his sake. Yes, to come together for his sake or to come together according to the way that he teaches us. Yes, that's what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus. You're right? Baptized for the sake of Jesus. Baptized according to what he taught us in fulfillment of his commandment. And why, what, what is the purpose of the presence of Jesus when these two or three people come together? It's for reconciliation. It's to bring peace to the community. It's to restore the witness of the community because there's nothing worse Yes, then when Christians who are supposed, who say we love Jesus and we love each other, when we fight and we bicker and we kick, yes, and we scream at each other, and mostly it's nothing to do with doctrine, right? It's about, again, our brokenness, our egos, our insecurities, our pride, whatever that may be. And here Jesus is saying, I am committed to the process of healing, uh, healing relationships. I am committed, I'm going to be there with you in the midst of this process, yes, of fixing what went wrong. And of course, he, won't, he can only fix, you know, what we let him fix. So here's another promise, yes, of Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the end of our gospel reading, the most beautiful promise of all, I am with you to the very end of the age. Okay? And so it fits. It works in Matthew's gospel. There's a bigger picture here as well um, in which I don't think we really have time to, uh, to discuss, but, y- you know, there is the... Um, we better leave it. Let's look at their text. <laughs> You know, I'm infamous, some of you have never been here before, for this 
for the 47-point sermon, <laughs> you know, and everybody tells me to keep it to under 20 points or less. Okay, and I'm trying my best. So in Matthew 28, yes, <clears throat> the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So again, there's something very nice. The, the ministry of Jesus starts in Galilee. It's now, at least in, for Matthew, it's going to end uh, in Galilee. It's in Galilee that Jesus tells his disciples, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and avoid the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Yes, and he gives them authority to go there. So they go back to Galilee. Uh, it happens on a mountain. Yes, what ha what, Jesus is transformed on a mountain. Jesus gives his teaching on the mountain, uh, or that we call the Sermon on the Mount. All of this, yes, it's supposed to remind us and point back to Moses uh, to say to the reader, to us, hey, this Jesus isn't dropping out of the sky on a spaceship with no connection uh, with anything, but that Jesus is in a line of continuity, yes, with the Old Testament, yes, with the, the flow, uh, the stream of Jewish spirituality, Jewish history, that he's the prophet like Moses, but actually he's a prophet, in this case, Messiah, greater than Moses as well. So they're meeting on a mountain. They worship, again, to all my many friends who um, tell me uh, in this day and age, you know, that Jesus uh, was not a, uh, a, divine, a divine figure. Yes, already with the Father in heaven from the beginning of time. Yes, this is a troublesome verse, right? For those who deny the divinity of Jesus. Here are Jews, strict, so-called strict monotheists. They're going to worship. But I like what comes after this, and some doubted. So the scene is already set. Yes, the 11 aren't perfect. They're not fully formed in their faith. They haven't graduated from seminary. Yes, they haven't uh, finished, you know, uh, their apprenticeship. They haven't read the book, you know, 99 Proofs for the Resurrection. <clears throat> there's, a, there's some doubt. And what's hopefully comforting about all this for us is that Jesus is going to build on folks who are less than perfect. Yes, who are less than fully baked or complete, but they're, they're complete enough. Yes, they're not, again, we're not going to wait for them to be totally, fully, completely mature in their faith. And then Jesus goes on to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And this is Jesus, uh, yes, connecting himself to that mysterious figure in Daniel chapter 7. It was from our second reading, yes, where the uh, figure approaches the Ancient of Days, someone who's already in heaven <coughs> with God. 
And we didn't read Daniel 7 verse 9, but in Daniel 7 9 it says thrones were set up. Thrones. And of course, we wouldn't ask the question, but to Jews who sometimes, who many times read the Bible, like a blind person reads Braille, they ask, well, wait a minute, why does God need thrones? One throne is surely enough for God? And the answer was, they understood from the passage, one throne is for the Messiah. Yes, and one throne is for God. And so you have this son of man <coughs> figure. And Jesus will constantly refer to himself, not as a savior, not as the Messiah. He will call himself the son of man. Yes, and by calling himself the son of man, he hints, yes, he, he, he makes a remez in Hebrew, a hint to this passage. Yes, he is this figure. All power and authority is given to him. Yes, all nations will worship him, and there'll be no end to his kingship. This we can see, you know, as evidence uh, in the world today, where his kingship is continuing to expand, right, in the lives of people and going from one nation to another. Yes, all authority. And, and, and Daniel, the son of man figure, is the one who's victorious. He's the one who's vindicated. And Jesus now says, after living faithfully, obeying God, going to the cross, being raised from the dead, Jesus now says, yes, yeah, I'm, I'm the, the one who's victorious. Yes, I'm the one who has triumphed and God has given me all authority. It's not the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus says this. That's what it means to be the son of man. Now, many times when we hear the phrase son of man, we think, oh, it means to be a human being. And in actual fact, in order to confuse you, and, to, and I want to be as clear as mud here, yes, sometimes, and at sometimes, it does mean to be a human being. But most of the time that Jesus does, uses it, it doesn't. And when Jesus says the and when Jesus says that, yes, the Son of Man will come and he will judge the sheep and the goats, he's referring to himself as this divine judge, right, who at the, at the end of the age will judge the nations. But when Jesus says the, the Son of Man, referring to himself, does not have a place to lay his head, he's referring to himself as a human being in that case. And in both cases, both instances, both instances, yes, this is very significant. On one hand, Jesus is a human. Jesus, can, Jesus certainly, yes, can and does identify with us. Yes, he lives uh, a life like we do. He gets up or he got up. He went to work. He had to put up with stupid people. He had to put up with gossipy neighbors. Yes, he had all the frustrations and joys that we do, all the temptations, 
yet he doesn't sin. He even faces, has to face death, as each of us will some sooner rather than later. And so therefore Jesus can and does identify, yes, with the human frame and the human weakness, weaknesses, yes, and the, the pressures and temptations that all of us have. On the other hand, when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, or Jesus talks about the Son of Man and talks about all authority and power has been given to him, he's talking about a divine figure who's been victorious. And because he's been victorious, and because all authority has been given to him, he says the following, Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, think back. Think back just a little bit. Where else in this gospel, yes, does someone come and say, Hey, Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all the nations. Just worship me. Just take a shortcut, Jesus. You know, don't go to the cross. You know, don't suffer. Don't live out, you know, three, four years of ministry, whatever it was. Just bow down and worship me and all of this can be yours. Now, what if Jesus would have done that? Gosh, it's a, it's a scary thought to think. But what would have been the implications? The nations are actually the devils to give. There's no question about that. But all that he gives is very temporal, right? It all soon turns to dust. Nations go up and nations go down and they disappear. Yes. Just worship me. And you can have all this. <clears throat> but instead, Jesus is faithful. And being faithful even to the point of going to the cross, yes, the Father gives him all, nation, gives him all the nations of the world. And what the Father gives him is actually eternal. Right? What the devil would, would offers Jesus and offers us is very temporary. Yes, it goes away when we die. So Jesus says, I've got this authority. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. Go. That's the first word. Now go, we, when we hear, the, when we read this, we think, the Lord's calling me to Africa. I'm going to Uganda. I'm going to the city of Jinja at the source of the Nile. There are crocodiles there and lots of mosquitoes with malaria, but I'm gonna go for the Lord. Yes, literally in the Greek, it's in your going. Or as we go, as you go where? To your, to your brother's school, to the dry cleaners, you know, on that road trip, Route on Route 66, wherever you go, this is what you should be doing. It may be that the Lord calls you to go somewhere or to go to speak to someone. But here, this is something 
Jesus says this is something that should be a part of everyday life, right? Go and make, make disciples. Oh, go and make disciples. Actually, to tell you the truth, I don't like the word disciples. It's an overworked religious word. Is it not? Discipleship, discipleship. We need disciples. We need discipleship. You know, it becomes a word that kind of loses its punch. You know, so let's say, go and make students, learners. No, go and make apprentices. Yes, someone who will learn under a master or a teacher. Yes, that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying. And by the way, he says it in his Jewish context. And I mentioned this morning the, the name Dallas Willard, a blessed memory. What a marvelous man with an incredible teaching ministry. Or the navigators who in the seven, 60s and 70s kind of made discipleship popular. God bless them. But what's really curious is that when it comes to teaching and preaching about making disciples, we never or we rarely yeah, no, go back to its Jewish context because it was a Jewish spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice that existed even before the time of Jesus. Yes, <clears throat> and what was it all about? What was the purpose of discipleship? Yes, this, you know, we, discipleship wasn't, an, wasn't really a program. Now, there are discipleship, I, I need to be really careful, memorizing scripture, fellowshipping, um, praying, you know, being, all these things which you may read about in the discipleship course are great and they're good things. But we would be really, really um, foolish, maybe, or short-sighted if we said, oh, it's just about, all this is, all of this is about what? It's about a program. No, it's about a person. And the word, the key word when it comes to discipleship can be summed up really simple. It's called attachment. It's called connecting. Because when Jesus was walking around teaching, there were other sages or teachers, whom I'm reluctant to quite call rabbis, but they were walking around as well. And they had students. And the reason a student attached himself to a teacher, well, yes, was that student wanted to acquire the words or to acquire the meaning and the understanding of the scripture, of the Torah, God's guidance, direction, and instruction. Now, the student would follow the rabbi. He would, it could be she in some cases, and let's say they would observe the life of the rabbi very carefully, seek to imitate the rabbi, seek to find out how the rabbi treated his wife, you know, what he, how he gave to charity, um, whether he got up in the morning and, and was having a bad hair day, whether he was cranky and miserable and, you know, snapped at folks. Yes, because you can't acquire, 
You can't acquire an understanding of the Torah. You can't acquire an understanding of the deepest, fullest understanding of the scripture from just hearing lectures, from just hearing sermons. Sermons don't really change people. For the life of me, I don't know why I go on like they do, okay? <clears throat> like for, like for you know, hour and a half, two hours, right? Sermons are helpful, but you don't, you, you don't change and can't change people from the front of a church, generally. How do people change? They change in relationships, right? It's relationships that are critical. So you have a relationship with this teacher. You have a, and you hear the teacher, and you watch the teacher. You can imitate the teacher, but you share his life. Yes, yes, his suffering, his struggles, etc., etc. You participate fully in the life of the teacher, right? That's first century, first century discipleship. In our culture, especially Protestant culture, we're basically sticks with brains. Everything has to be is very intellectual, including the sermon. Yes, everything is just what happens here. And I'll tell you, you re, we, what, is the, what are the statistics? We remember 10% of what we hear. We remember 30 or 40% of what we see. We remember much more of what we see and hear together. And we remember 80% of what we do. Of what we do. Right? So it's in that, it's in the hearing, seeing, and doing. That's what makes discipleship so successful. And in order for it to work, the student has to be attached to the teacher, connected, loyal. And the attachment goes as far as understanding, hey, I'm in a new family now. And my teacher is more important than my mom and dad or my brother and sister, as much as I may love them and care for them. Because it was said in the ancient Jewish world that if your, your mother and father and rabbi, teacher, if they are somehow captured by the Romans, go and ransom your teacher first and then your parents. But, but then someone asked, why, scandalously? What about the fifth commandment? And the answer is, your, you know, your parents brought you into this world, but your teacher will bring you into the next. Okay? It's attachment. It's loyalty. It's the desire to stick close, to pay attention. And by the way, what did, what did the disciple do for the te teacher? He's, he or she served the teacher, right? They helped with the food. They collected money. They distributed goods to the poor, just like the disciples of Jesus did, right? There's a certain service, right, that is a part of discipleship. Yes, it's called serving a sage. And the disciples of Jesus are preparing the Passover. They're giving out the fish and the bread, etc., etc. Yes, it's attachment. To be a disciple is to be attached. Yes, those spiritual disciplines, 
like a quiet time, like serious Bible study, all of that helps. But it's much more than some intellectual or theological or doctrinal activity. And I'm not promoting bad doctrine or promoting no doctrine. But again, it's that relationship and attachment which becomes essential. And in the process, in the process, the disciple changes and becomes transformed and actually looks more and more like the teacher, right? There has to be a process of transformation. That, that's, by the way, that's also called holiness. Holiness. And transformation and holiness, they're not ends in themselves, right? They're, the goal of transformation, the goal of holiness, is not just to obey a bunch of rules or to be miserable by not going to the movies or you know, not drinking gin and tonics or whatever. The goal of holiness right, is to come into a place of greater blessing, yes, of greater empowerment and greater relationship with the Lord. It has its sacrifices, but it has its great, great, great rewards. Go and make disciples of all nations. <clears throat> Go and teach people how to be <clears throat> attached, attached to Jesus. And how are we attached to Jesus? By obeying what he commands us. Yes, by keeping his commandments, right? The, the paradigm in scripture is always that obedience to God's commandments makes us holy. Where do I know that from? Numbers 15, where it says Jewish men should wear tassels. And when they look at those tassels, they will, and see a cord of blue, they will remember all the commandments of the Lord and be holy. So go and make disciples. Yes, with the goal being holy. Now, in order to go and make disciples, we have to be disciples ourselves. We have to not, we have to not only teach and model transformation, but we have to be the ones who are being transformed, who are brought to that place of maturity and to, and to holiness. It doesn't work. Uh, you know, it doesn't work otherwise. And for some, for some people, if, you, if you're going to say, be attached to Jesus, they're going to say, yeah, that seems a little esoteric or a little bit abstract. And this is where people, in humility and in fear and trembling, where some of us have to step forward and say, okay, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, follow me as I follow Christ. Yes, if being a disciple is an apprentice, sometimes there needs to be mentors. Yes, sometimes there needs to be people in the lives of the disciple to actually show them the way to model the way. And Paul says it, he says in Philippians, he says in 1 Thessalonians, yes, imitate us. Yes, are we prepared to say, are we prepared to say, or is it scary or frightening? Hey, um, to someone, look, I know you're having difficulty. You know what, I've, I've gone through that 
just why don't you let me share my life with you and uh, my victory over sin or my victory over fear, whatever that may be, so that uh, you can kind of model your life after me. Oh, no, no, but it should only be Jesus. No. No. Jesus, they're teachers and they're leaders and they're more. And so it's interesting, Jesus has baptized, be baptized, not only make disciples, not only teach them all that I have taught, but then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why that? Because what happened to Jesus at the Jordan River? Yes, Jesus goes into the water. He hears the voice of the Father. Yes, and the, the Spirit descends upon him. And you might say that discipleship is ultimately wrapped up not just in Jesus, but it's wrapped up totally and fully in the Godhead. Yes, Jesus, to be Christ-like is to be God-like, right? It's Jesus who brings us to the Father, but it only happens through the Spirit. It's by obeying the commandments of Jesus that we become godly and we enter into a deeper fellowship with the Father. But again, it's only, <clears throat> it's only the Holy Spirit. And in the end, the promise is, I am with you till the end of the age. Meaning, if you're doing this stuff, yeah, and I don't want to take away the general presence of Jesus. If you're doing this stuff, if you're, yes, making disciples, Yes, baptizing. I'm with you. There's no need to be afraid. Yes, there's no need to, um, to become discouraged and say, oh no, so many people are leaving the church and they're leaving the Lord, uh, you know, or to lose heart or to lack faith. But I will tell you this. And here we need to be warned about, you know, relating to the temptations of our age. And here are the temptations. One, yes, discipleship is very slow and it's sometimes um, uneven. And, you know, there is no real change in people's lives unless there's conversion, unless people's heart are their hearts are changed, and unless right, their behavior follows after a change of heart. And sometimes that can take time, and that can take years. And here you have Jesus, that Son of Man, who is in, on one hand a human being, who actually can sympathize with us, who can uh, be merciful, Yes, because he knows what it's like to be a human. You don't have to become a super Christian overnight. Although we should be progressing, <clears throat> yes, with the goal being holiness. And of course, Matthew's gospel has some hard things to say to us, doesn't it? Like, walk the extra mile, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, etc. Things that are not easy and might seem harsh. Yet at the same time, there is a God 
There is a, there is a Jesus who taught, teaches these things, who understands. We need to be careful that we don't substitute the, pro, the hard work of discipleship and the work of conversion that comes by the Holy Spirit with force. We are very frustrated in our societies today. And many people are starting to look for a strong guy who's going to come and force things to happen. Make things happen. Just push people. Put their face in the dirt and rub it in. Yes, they may not have a change of heart, but who cares? You know, we have to create a godly society. Um, and so let's, let's just, you know, use the government or use social pressure, whatever it may be. We have a whole society, you know, from the right and the left, and they're all using the cancel culture, right, to try to pressure people into some kind of change. Yeah. Or you have even kind of bigger things. For 69 years, yes, the Soviet Union, yeah, that's, that was its official uh, number of official years of existence, the Soviet Union tried to create the socialist man. Yes, the man or woman who did not do things out of greed, yes, or for personal profit or ambition, but in order to benefit all of society. And in the process, they killed millions and millions of people to try to bring this paradise on earth. And guess what? You know, it was in 1989, virtually, or 1991, I don't remember in this case of the Soviet Union, it disappeared overnight. All those years of using force, using force, using force doesn't work. And if we're going to be disciples and make disciples, we better be patient. And we better be prepared to go, you know, to go uh, the long way uh, in order to work with people. Because in the end, it's the most effective. It's, it's going to be the most rooted. Now let me say one other thing. We now have a generation, especially of young people, Okay, we have a generation of young people who are extremely bored. And many young people, yes, um, want to actually live a heroic life. They want their lives to actually count for something. Actually, many old people do too. They want their lives to count for something and to count for something eternal. Okay, instead of sitting in front of a computer screen all day playing uh, games or <clears throat> watching YouTube <clears throat> or getting off on pornography, yes, or only thinking about the self and self-flourishing, etc., etc. And I think what we need to do, right, to present, here is a, if you want to live a, a life that's heroic, and what does it mean to be a hero? To be committed to something to be committed passionately to something bigger yeah, than what we are. If you want to tell, you want to say to folks, listen, get out from the computer screen and take a risk and live dangerously and live adventurously and come and join us in being a disciple and making disciples. 
Yes, that is the riskiest and most meaningful thing that one can do with their lives. Amen. I mean, preaching is great. But this is something, yes, this is something more than preaching. Preaching is necessary. Okay. But the challenge, yes, an adventurous life, a meaningful life, yes, a life that uh, has the elements of, of being something of a hero, because it is probably deep within a lot of people, yes, that they want to live, you know, this sort of existence. Yes, the commands of Jesus. Let's go and be disciples, and wherever we go and whenever we go, let's be intentional about making disciples, attaching people to Jesus, yes, uh, in such a way that it becomes transforming. So, Father in heaven, we thank you for these words, the words of Matthew's gospel, the words of your son, uh, and we ask that um, we will not fall victims to be uh, victims to be tempted, Lord, uh, by uh, the, our age and culture. And we pray that we will not uh, become so satiated uh, and, Lord, bloated <clears throat> with self-interest um, and selfism that, uh, Lord, we, can, we will not hear your call to go and make disciples. Lord, we ask that you would call each one of us, that you would challenge each one of us, that you would give us the faith and the confidence, Lord, to live a life that's totally committed to you and a life in which, Lord, we are willing to take risks, uh, Lord, that uh, we will know that you are always, always with us. And we do ask these things for the sake of your son. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.